Time travel is a common literary device that has been around since the dawn of storytelling. There are many ancient legends among a plethora of cultures that employ it. Everyone from Urashimo no Ko to Rip Van Winkle has experienced time slips. H.G. Wells' The Time Machine is definitely not the first time travel story. It's not even the first time travel story that was written by H.G. Wells. Still, it's a watershed moment in cultural history, and just about every subsequent time travel story owes something to it. Uh, the Time Machine has had a number of direct adaptations, starting with a radio dramatization in 1948, a live teleplay was broadcast by the BBC a year later, and the first Hollywood film was produced in 1960. A TV movie was produced and aired a year before the debut of this podcast subject, a derivative work called Time After Time. When any story endures and mutates as much as the time machine, that indicates that there's something broadly appealing about it that speaks to something at the heart of the human condition. So many people have read, watched, listened to, and otherwise internalized this story in some capacity. Many have used it as a jumping off point for their own art. Those people come from a variety of backgrounds and have a number of perspectives, but Wells' vision connected with all of them. And we'll be exploring why over the course of this dialogue that we're having about this incredibly silly movie. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. All right, joining me on this one is my brother Sylvan. I'm back for a Cheryl pick. Ha ha. And Cheryl, who, who selected this one. I did. And as usual, Sylvan is not crazy about it. To be fair, I don't think I'm alone this time. You've liked some of my picks before. I have, and I feel like you kind of had some regrets about this one. No, I, I'm glad that I saw it, because that trailer was bomb-ass, but, like, the movie did not live up to the hype of the trailer. Okay, so I'm not just being grumpy by saying this was a bad movie. You are the toughest critic who regularly appears on this podcast, but yeah, I wasn't nuts about this one either. The running was good. Parts of it I liked. The I cha- didn't object to the homoeroticism. <laughs> the, ch- the chase scenes are fun. Uh, the time travel special effects are amusingly dated. Uh, the parts where they're shamelessly lifting from 2001 A Space Odyssey are cute. The dialogue and uh, the social values all needed some work. Yeah, their heart was in the right place, but uh, they were like 80% of the way there in their best moments. I feel like you could easily lift the romance plot out of this movie and still have this movie. But anyways, plot recap. <laughs> All right, we open in 1893 London, or a spirit Halloween version thereof, where a popular writer, uh, Herbert George Wells, displays a time machine to his skeptical dinner party guests, much wait, wait, like wait. in the novel. You're forgetting the opening with the ripper, the ripper murder, oh. with the ripping sound effects. Yeah. Because he literally rips people. <laughs> I thought it was more of a zipper sound effect. And and Jenny has quite the spirit Halloween costume of a uh, lady of the night, and there was so much fog machine. Anyways, Fells explains how the time machine works to his guests and also the audience, which includes having a non-return key that keeps the machine at the traveler's destination and a vaporizing equalizer that keeps the traveler and the machine on equal terms. Uh, The police constables suddenly arrive, searching for Jack the Ripper. A bag with blood-stained gloves belonging to Wells' friend, John Leslie Stevenson, a surgeon, leads them to conclude that Stevenson is possibly the infamous killer. Wells races to his laboratory, but the police neglected to search their basement, and the time machine is gone. (laughs) (laughs) The police being incompetent is a recurring motif in this film, and is the most realistic part. Also, let's just say now how fucking gorgeous that time machine was. 
It is based on the 1960 time machine, and that is usually argued as the best direct adaptation of the time machine in film. It has little jewels on the side. It's adorable. It's so pretty, and it just throws rainbows everywhere. Time is rainbows. Anyway, Stevenson, Jack the Ripper, escapes to the future, though without the non-return key, causing the machine to automatically reappear in 1893. Wells then pursues Stevenson to November 5th, 1979, at that point the present day, where the machine is now on display in a San Francisco museum dedicated to Wells. Why this museum is in San Francisco and not London, I don't know. Wells finds the future deeply shocking, having expected an enlightened socialist utopia. Instead, he sees chaos in the form of airplanes, automobiles, and when he finally tracks down Levinson, he demonstrates a very slanted perspective upon global war, crime, and bloodshed. Wells seems horrified that there have been two world wars, which, you know, fair. There's also some, uh, I, I imagine, there, the Palestine, uh, there's, a, there's some social commentary on the Israeli state throughout this. Yeah, the 1970s was a particularly tumultuous time in Israel-Palestine relations. Not that, you know, any period wasn't. Anyways, at a bank, Wells exchanged some British banknotes for present-day currency. Hungry, he enters a McDougal's and is alternatively puzzled and pleased with the 1979 dining options. Reasoning that Stevenson also needed to exchange British money, Wells visits various banks searching for him. At the Chartered Bank of London, he meets employee Amy Robbins, who directed Stevenson to the Hyatt Regency Hotel. Smitten with Wells, mysteriously, she gives him her card, saying that he should give her a ring. Confronted at the Hyatt by Wells, Stevenson confesses that he finds modern society pleasingly violent, stating, 90 years ago, I was a freak. Today, I'm an amateur. This is my time, not yours. And he's very seductive in his movements the whole time. He just leans <laughs> sideways on the bed and starts patting it. I won't bite. Well, it's David Warner's voice. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> Clearly into Wells. Wells demands that he return to 1893 to face justice and has no follow-up recourse in case Levinson declines. <laughs> but Stevenson instead attempts to wrestle the time machine's key from him. The struggle's interrupted by a maid and Stevenson flees, getting hit by a car during the frantic chase. The frantic Muppet-style chase. We'll oh be, gosh, we'll be getting so to what. We'll be getting to why they're running like that later on. Wells follows him to the hospital emergency room and is inaccurately told that Stevenson is dead. Uh, Wells meets up with Amy Robbins again and she initiates a romance. Stevenson returns to the bank to exchange more money after they uh, the two get to know each other doing a very, very long romantic interlude with no sexual chemistry whatsoever, which is also incredibly odd for reasons that I will get to. Suspecting that Amy had led Wells to him at the Hyatt, Stevenson frightens her into giving Wells a message and later discovers where she lives. He looks her up in the phone book. Phone books are a thing. Google it, children. To convince a highly skeptical Amy that he is indeed telling the truth about being a time traveler, and also the famous author H.G. Wells, Wells takes her three days into the future. She is aghast to see a newspaper headline revealing that she has been murdered by the San Francisco Ripper. Wells persuades her that they must go back to uh, the present in order to prevent the fourth victim's murder, then prevent Amy's. Upon returning, they are delayed and can do no more uh, than phone the police, who are staggeringly ineffective. Stevenson kills again, and Wells is arrested due to his knowledge about the killing. Amy is left alone, totally defenseless against Stevenson. And despite the fact that she knows uh, the specter of her own grisly murder is on the horizon, she dopes herself up real good with Valium and chases it with some brandy and then lays down for a 
nap. Yeah, in, in the scene of her murder, which she knows about. While Wells unsuccessfully tries to convince the police of Amy's peril, she attempts to hide from Stevenson in the closet. When the police finally investigate her apartment, they find a woman's dismembered body there. Believing him innocent at this point, the police release a now heartbroken Wells and, uh... With no follow-up questions whatsoever about any of this. Well, he's clearly a witch. They're like, were you psychic? And now they're like, oh my god, he's psychic. (laughs) Wandering through the city despondently, Wells discovers that Stevenson actually killed Amy's co-worker, who was the dead body in Amy's apartment. Fuck, what's her name? Carol? Yeah, Carol. Carol. Levinson contacts Wells that he has taken Amy hostage and that he wants the time machine key back from him. Stevenson flees with the key and Amy as an insurance hostage, uh, intending a permanent escape into the time machine. Wells erratically drives Amy's car and chases him to the museum. While Wells bargains for Amy's life, she escapes. As Stevenson starts up the time machine, however, Wells removes the vaporizing equalizer, causing Stevenson to vanish uh, into the phantom zone while the machine remains there. (laughs) Did anyone else notice that, like, he watched him do it and, like, he nodded? He's like, yes. Yeah, he did. I, I picked that up. Send me into time and space. Stevenson has been sent traveling endlessly through time. Uh, Wells proclaims that he must return to his own time at this point and destroy the time machine because it's too dangerous for primitive mankind to handle. Amy pleads with him to take her along, saying that she has no remaining ties in the 20th century without him. The film ends with the caption, H.G. Wells marries Amy Catherine Robbins, who died in 1927. As a writer, he anticipated socialism, global war, space travel, and women's liberation. He died in 1946. Socialism was very much a thing before H.G. Wells came along, but, you know, close enough. I do like that this movie ends with, a, like, a paragraph that you usually see in based on a true story movies. Yeah, like a league of their own. <laughs> I was waiting for more, like, frozen newspaper clippings, like showing Jack the Ripper in space and time. <laughs> <laughs> Neil before Jack the Ripper. <laughs> All right, for a production of this, uh, it is based upon the novel of the same name by Carl Alexander. Oh my god. That's lovely! Alexander was a Nepo baby. His father wrote Old Yeller and his uncle wrote Ben-Hur. Oh. It was unfinished at the time that it was optioned for a movie. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant business decisions all around. Well done, well-connected white men. See, Alexander showed the first 55 pages of his unfinished manuscript to his pal, uh, Hollywood writer-director Nicholas Meyer. Meyer liked it so much that he bought the film rights and then finished writing the screenplay, and uh, Alexander's novel is based on the movie screenplay. That's amazing. I love that. I hate everything about this. Warner Brothers snapped it up right away, thinking that it was very marketable. They pushed for Mick Jagger to play Jack the Ripper. Oh my god! <laughs> but Meyer didn't think that Jagger would be convincing. Uh, he it ev- could have been even sillier. <laughs> he eventually got producer Herb Jaffe on his side, and eventually convinced Warner Brothers to cast David Warner as Dr. Levinson slash Jack the Ripper instead. I mean... Every time I see that man in anything, I'm convinced he's always evil, so... Except in Ninja Turtles. No, I still expect him to be evil in Ninja Turtles every time. Warner has explained that Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze, is one of his favorite movies that he's in because he got to play a good guy for once. I still don't believe it. I'm just waiting. Every It's just gonna happen where he, like, looks the wrong way and you're like, oh no! 
The movie's not going to change. You don't know that. I mean, Warner is one of those figures where he's just a recurring figure throughout my entire childhood, so I'm just happy to see him in whatever. And he is delightful in this. And uh, yes, it is very easy to read sexual tension between him and Malcolm McDowell. And also, when he's adjusted to life in the 1970s and he's rocking that <laughs> turtleneck and corduroy vest combo... Oh my gosh, the denim too is delightful. <laughs> he is very convincing as somebody who is at home in the 1970s. And that voice. I mean, his his hair is very naturally 70s in that. Following his performance that made him established in A Clockwork Orange, Malcolm McDowell got typecast as Irredeemable Scumbags. After he performed in the infamous 1970s disaster of Caligula, as Caligula, McDowell was very thirsty to play absolutely any other kind of role. His agent pursued time after time vigorously. Oh, because he really wanted to play a naive but lovable dolt? Yes, as opposed to, say... Caligula, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Initially, McDowell wanted to imitate Wells' actual speaking voice, However, after listening to Wells' high-pitched Cockney accent on several recordings, McDowell decided that this was a bad idea, and that time after time would be unintentionally hilarious if that happened. I mean, it was unintentionally hilarious anyway, but good instinct. I really would have loved to have seen, like, an outtake of that, though. Like, any of those scenes with that voice. He would have just sounded like Jenny from the beginning. I was thinking of, um, uh, from Who Framed Roger Rabbit? When I kill a child for that! Except Cockney. Governor! <laughs> Bob's uncle just like this! <laughs> Alright, uh, Warner Brothers wanted Sally Field to play Amy, but no. uh, Field wasn't interested. I don't Good blame instincts. her, that is not her role. Meyer wanted to cast his then-girlfriend at the time, Shelley Hack, but Hack felt conflicted about accepting a role from a romantic partner and instead took a bit part. Uh, She was the person giving the H.G. Wells tour when uh, he first arrives. Oh. Also, this is as good a time as any to mention that this is Corey Feldman's first film role. He's the little boy that notices that uh, H.G. Wells is inside the time machine. Yeah, I mean, I'd say good for him, but, like, you know, his life... None of that went well, yeah. Yeah. Mary Steenbergen eventually won the position. Sylvan is not fond of Mary Steenbergen's voice. It was more, not the voice itself, but her speech patterns. The cadence was just very off-putting. And um, a lot of run-on sentences, a lot of points where I feel like in a normal conversation she would have been interrupted. And, And since there was a lot of weird sexual stuff coming from her, it would have been nice if she'd been interrupted sometimes. Yeah, the big speech where she insists that she's not a lesbian, and also the the, the bit where she's seducing H.G. Wells in her apartment, and she's like, I'm practically raping you. That was awful. Well, also, too, like, when she first, like, started making eyes at him, she's just like, and this one's not gay. And I'm like, there's a story there. Carol, tell us the story. Also, the I'm practically raping you, that was in the trailer. I don't remember that being in the trailer. It was in the trailer you, you sent to my phone. You're like, I want to do this. This is my pick. <laughs> and, and you did not warn me. Thanks. <laughs> I, I, I told you that it was a rom-com where H.G. Wells travels back in time to chase Jack the Ripper. Was this a rom-com? It was romantic, but I think it was more of like a romedy. Most of the times they were going for laughs, I didn't laugh, and a lot of the times where they weren't trying to be funny, I laughed. So, okay, that's fair. 
Interestingly enough, Steenbergen and McDowell hit it off on set, and they had an on-set affair, so they were super into each other. Yeah, that does not come across at all. Not even a little bit. She's, like, frozen most of the time near each other, and there's so much space. This was rough because McDowell was married at the time, but... By the next year, he was divorced, and he ended up marrying. Uh, They had two children before divorcing ten years later. He got remarried again a year later, so he got up to his old tricks, I imagine. She married Ted Danson five years after that, and they are still together. I love Ted Danson. He's so sweet and everything. Time After Time was shot on location in San Francisco. The elevator at the hotel that Cheryl was admiring is also featured prominently in The Towering Inferno and High Anxiety. It really should be like a Wonka-vader if they're going to do the Great Glass Elevator anytime. I mean, that's where Mel Brooks exonerates himself because he's both in the elevator and committing the murder in High Anxiety. A stunt double was used extensively for David Warner since he was still recovering from two broken ankles while filming. Uh, You can see him running gingerly in close-ups for this very reason. This is not the end of ankle trouble as McDowell sprained his ankle on set and a double was needed for the scene where Wells is dashing through the columns and also Malcolm McDowell runs like a Muppet. Yes. (laughs) All of that menace from A Clockwork Orange is gone now. Oh, 100%. But, like, also, too, I feel for him because when I'm wearing my heels that don't grip well, that is exactly how I run. I think partially maybe McDowell was tempted to take this part because this is a silly goof. Everyone knows that this movie is a silly goof. Well, Caligula went badly in a whole bunch of ways, and McDowell got his heart broken by Stanley Kubrick on the set of A Clockwork Orange. Stanley Kubrick is not good to his actors, in case you didn't know that. It's kind of a little under the radar factoid I'm slipping in there. Mm-hmm. The music for this film, it is one of the last movies scored by Miklos Rosa. Rosa worked on several classic British films uh, under the uh, Corda production company, including The Four Feathers and The Thief of Baghdad. Um, not the silent era one, the one from 1940. Over the course of his career, he got 17 Oscar nominations for Best Score and won three times for Spellbound, Double Life, and Ben-Hur. Yeah, coming back to Ben-Hur. His other credits include Double Indemnity, Sahara, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. However, he did say that Time After Time was his toughest assignment. Yeah, it feels uncomfortable because the music is good, it just doesn't match anything that is happening ever. Yeah, the vibe is very 1970s, and there are points that reference the new Hollywood era, but we're also getting a very classical Golden Age Hollywood melodrama score going on. Like the part where Amy sees the newspaper and the date of her murder, the strings swell in a very intense way, and in context, we all laughed. Yeah, but like, again, I I feel like the music cared more than the actors did. And uh, for the chase scenes, we're getting like very dramatic Hitchcockian suspense finally paying off. And uh, And they're running like Muppets. (laughs) This is awesome. Rosa retired from scoring after suffering a stroke in 1982, but he continued to write concert pieces until he died in 1995 at the age of 88. Uh, one other musical connection for this film is that one day Cindy Lauper was flipping through a TV guide looking for like random inspiration for song titles and came across Time After Time. <gasps> I did not know that. That's awesome. That just made me very happy. These are good reasons about this movie, Sylvan. Okay, we've got one. <laughs> Contemporary reviews for Time After Time were largely positive. 
What? How? They praise the three lead actors as the main reason why the film works. No! General consensus is that Time After Time is a fun romp elevated by a cast that fully understood the assignment. Did we watch the same movie? I think times change. I think Warner's a lot of fun in this still. I'm not disagreeing with you, but like, I don't think that anybody was acting off of each other at all. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think once again, there is some tension between Warner and McDowell. Maybe not in the direction that they were intending. <laughs> I mean, we might be reading it a certain way because of who we are, but you know. No, no, went, that was gay as fuck. There's ta- no, there's no heterosexual explanation for Jack the Ripper in this movie. When he, when, when he taps the bed and says "sit," <laughs> <laughs> after like tossing his hair with make while making intense eye contact the whole time. I guess it's better than Steenberg. Like, I'm really attracted to you because you seem like a lost little boy and it's bringing out my maternal instincts. Ugh. And I was like, oh, you want to be a mommy and not in a fun way. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, this didn't get much Oscar love, but it did get a lot of Saturn attention. It got nominated for a whole bunch of them and it won three. Uh, one for writing, one for Steinberger for uh, Best Actress, and uh, Rosa picked up a Saturn for Best Music. I agree with the last one. Also, Robert Zemeckis sought out Steenbergen to play Doc Brown's love interest in Back to the Future 3 because he really, really liked Time After Time. I mean, that's a fun fact. I mean, I do think that Steenbergen is essentially playing the very same character in Back to the Future 3, but I I like her a lot more than that one. I agree with you. There's a lot less weird long pauses. Another connection that comes up is that after the first Star Trek, the motion picture endured a troubled production and a mixed critical reception, although it made enough money to necessitate a sequel, Meyer was brought on to bring some professional craftsmanship to the sequel due to his solid work on Time After Time. I don't have box office data, but Time After Time made a healthy profit. Meyer wrote and directed Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. He wrote Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And he wrote and directed Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Meyer is mostly known as the Star Trek guy. Time After Time is like the eighth or ninth thing on his resume. You know, if this was a Star Trek episode too, I would have loved the shit out of it. Just saying. Star Trek IV in particular is a time travel story and it recycles a few of Time After Time's elements. The currency uh, exchange uh, scene and Kirk's love interest have obvious parallels to Time After Time. The boombox scene from Star Trek IV is taken from a bit that was cut out of Time After Time for time purposes. (laughs) That's cute. But um... A Time After Time musical with book and lyrics by Stephen Cole and music by Jeffrey Saver had its first reading in 2007, and it premiered at the Pittsburgh Playhouse in 2010. It did not get a Broadway run. Do you know the name of any of the songs from this? Because I want to immediately look them up. I did look it up on YouTube, and there are a couple of, like, amateur, like, phone screen capture performances from what I could gather. If there isn't a Jack the Ripper song that's, like, in the nick of time, I'm gonna, like, lose my shit. (laughs) Alexander wrote a sequel to Time After Time called Jacqueline the Ripper in 2009. The plot follows Amy and Wells discovering that Jack the Ripper survived his end, had gotten out of prison, and had resumed killing in the 2010s after transitioning to a female body. I like none of this. (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I am not, I'm not gonna read that. He got, There's there's so many ways that could go wrong, and Alexander is probably gonna touch on a bunch of them. In the movie we watched, he got vaporized. He got vaporized and then wound up in prison? Yeah, he got sent to the Phantom Zone. Yeah, I mean, well that, okay, fine. (laughs) 
This is not the end of Time After Time spinoffs, by the way. Seriously? I'd never even heard of this thing until today. <laughs> ABC picked up a Time After Time TV series for the 2016-17 television season. It was canceled after five episodes due to awful ratings. Each episode, uh, the title was taken from a lyric from the Cindy Lauper song. <gasps> Was it like Quantum Leap? Are they just like leaping through time to solve murders? I can't find any footage from the show. Maybe that sounds plausible enough. I hope that is what happened. And I hope that they got to use Cindy Lauper songs in every episode. Of course you do. Just like in the middle of the episode. Just everybody's talking and then it cuts out. And it's just a Cindy Lauper song. Cheryl was the target audience for this project. But unfortunately she didn't know about it. So it went off the air. I can't make up the ratings for like a bunch of people. Uh, all 12 Lots of things I love go off the air. All 12 of the filmed episodes were eventually broadcast in Spain, Portugal, Australia, and Latin America. What did those poor people do to deserve that? <laughs> they love Cindy Lauper, damn it! All right, and that's that. So uh, that brings us to themes. Oh, God. And I, I don't have, I, I didn't actually write anything down for this. I was just like, you know, while I'm watching the movie, maybe something will occur to me. Because all I can think about is stuff to say about the time machine, which is the H.G. Wells novel, which I, th I imagine most of that should be said if, you know, we actually do a straight adaptation of the time machine. Well, which wasn't enough for you. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the original concept of the time machine, aside from the eugenic stuff, because, you know, it's Victorian England, there's going to be eugenic stuff in it. It's mostly a cautionary tale about the stratification of society, because, you know, you have the, the, the vicious Morlocks and the lamb-like people who are uh, exploited by the Morlocks, essentially as a food source. And Wells is very clearly stating that the best way to destroy these artificial hierarchies before they get too bloodthirsty is to embrace the wonders of socialism. But there's also some eugenic stuff in there. The Time Machine's a complicated novel. Pretty much none of that is in Time After Time, aside from ranting a bit about socialism and how uh, it, it turned out that uh, three generations from Wells's time, we had not cast off the shackles of capitalism and embraced egalitarianism the way he wanted us to. Yeah, the movie definitely frames him very intentionally as like a naive, overly optimistic puppy who can't look after himself. And then he has to compromise his ideals throughout the movie. He buys the gun. So the writers, they don't agree with Wells. Uh, and I, I will dispute the gun bit because... That was also a plot device, yeah. He gets arrested immediately afterwards, and the gun gives them a pretext to take him into custody. So I do believe that a reading of the film is that the instant that Wells compromises idealism is what damned him, and he had to wiggle his way out of it. Also, there's that bit about how when Wells started ranting about while 20th century society has gotten more efficient at killing they're still as bloodthirsty as they are in his day and we just have to be better than that it isn't just about advancing the scope of technology we need to advance our abilities to be more mature and philosophically sound as a species and then immediately after that amy just looks at him and says i love you so the movie is clearly rewarding him for his idealism in certain scenes I think you guys are thinking about this way harder than the writers of the movie, but please go on. <laughs> 
Another thing that we haven't commented on too much is not just the mythos around H.G. Wells and the time machine, but also Jack the Ripper because he's present in this. Well, before we jump into that, I want to go into my, my other gripe about like characters going back on their stated idealism. Her like insisting that she was going to stay in the 20th century and all that because, you know, she needs her career. And like, I, I liked some of that because people who are not wealthy, able-bodied, cishet, white, men have complicated feelings about the prospect of jumping to other time periods and the fact that she was like fuck no resonated nicely with me like how we were talking about how we were glad that she could fix the car by herself you know she's an emancipated woman and then at the end oh ha surprise she went back in time with him she was his wife the whole time yeah but she totally was just running that man's life as she did throughout the course of the movie yeah she did say that her career was her life and then her character arc concluding was like no I am capable of love again my ex-husband didn't value my career but there's this Wells guy and he, he's doing it for me and um, he very obviously needs me he, he literally wanders into traffic when I'm not around she domed him though <laughs> like you can't say that she didn't oh she called herself his mommy yeah Eh, I still did not like that moment. Oh, it is regressive, and in a lot of ways, while the new Hollywood movement did push things in terms of on-screen depictions of sex and violence, we have talked about how before it is a very dude-run Hollywood movement. There wasn't much room for female directors uh, or people of color directing or doing anything of substance in terms of, like, writing or producing the films. There are rare exceptions to that, and in general, there were definitely reactionary strains that were introduced in 1970 cinema, notably the Dirty Harry movies, the Death Wish movies, but even celebrated new Hollywood stuff. The Exorcist is a pretty obvious example. Like, you know, you had that whole movement throughout the 60s of free love and anti-capitalism and feminism and the beginnings of the gay rights and the environmental movement getting uh, mainstream attraction, and there was throughout the 70s a pushback against that to, that eventually led to Reagan, and we've been living in that specter ever since. And yeah, Time After Time isn't quite as obvious an example of that as The Exorcist, but you can definitely make that argument, and Sylvan just did. But anyways, Jack the Ripper. It's interesting to factor him into this too, because in terms of like the history of mass murder, Jack the Ripper is kind of minor, but he did come around just as the Industrial Revolution was amping up mass media, and that is when one of the very early examples of spree killings being sensationalized by the press and turning into this big thing that true crime nerds started following breathlessly. And that's kind of continued uh, on to this modern day. Like, Jack the Ripper wasn't the first serial killer, but he was, like, the first major celebrity serial killer. I do not enjoy true crime culture. Yeah, him being turned into a mythological figure, especially in Time After Time, where he's like a cartoon supervillain, is an interesting touch. Although, even in the th- text of the film itself, it, it mentions that, like, you know, Ripper is not as big a deal as we- he's been puffed up to be. He flat out says that, hey, in the context of the entirety of things around me, I'm, I'm a bit of an amateur, aren't I? I think he was saying that to sound menacing, though. Like, I have room to grow. <laughs> Ah, evil. Oh, I thought he was more like, go home. You failed. Just go home now. Look this place. This is me. Let me rampage. And yeah, that's... Possibly join me. But what if... (laughs) 
yeah, that is an, another like reactionary element of the film because he's very much like walking around this uh, stereotypical San Francisco enmeshed in urban decay. You know, the the porno theaters and the and the sex shops and the live nude dancing girls with with the naked carnival barkers beckoning him <laughs> in. And the discos. Don't forget the the discos. Yeah, and there's definitely a part of the movie subtext of being like, hey, these people, they're kind of asking for it, aren't they? I honestly just, I loved that H.G. Wells was like struggling to survive and eat McDonald's and Jack the Ripper had like a weighted money belt. Everyone was talking about how big his money belt was. Yeah, so that's definitely uh, another element of the film that I'm a little squeamish about. Once again, this is a very, very silly movie. Taking it seriously is, as Cheryl intimated before, something that we probably shouldn't be doing. But it's definitely got some issues with basically every social issue. But the um, as much as I love the queer-coded villain and how, how very gay he was, you know, the movie's fucking homophobic. The movie's racist. The movie's anti-women. It probably doesn't think it's any of those things, but it really is. It's posturing itself as the opposite of that. And also, it is just very weirdly constructed. Like, uh, getting back to uh, reactionary cinema, uh, The Exorcist is a great movie and uh, Dirty Harry and Death Wish are fun if you're in the mood for that sort of thing, even though I hate the politics of both of those. Time After Time is not competent in the way that those things are. <laughs> it's a movie. <laughs> it's sure a movie. And it, boy, does it keep going. <laughs> the thing is, it's pretty short, actually. It's less than two hours. Yeah, it just I, dragged ass. I feel like 20 minutes of that is just non-pregnant pauses. <laughs> Well, anyways, that's uh, everything I think I have to say about this. Is there anything that uh, either of you would like to throw in about time after time before we close things out? Yeah, just the crowd scenes alone, the fashion, absolutely worth watching this movie one time for. That lady had see-through pants, and I was living for that. Yeah, the fashion was pretty good once we got out of Spirit Halloween London. All right, we got Sylvan to say a couple of nice things about time after time. I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) I talked about how much I liked the gay villain. (laughs) Well, that was a given. Good night. I was also very surprised how many times we didn't say, ooh, that's a wig. (laughs) For a 70s movie, that's pretty good. (laughs) 